talking about the Lord's Prayer because we're talking through the elements of our service, how they are rhythms of grace that write us into the gracious story of God, His grace and mercy for us, filling us and then sending us. So what could be more appropriate than a reminder to begin that God answers prayer? And not just in our power and our perfection and in our abilities, and, but God works through our weakness. So thank you, Joe, for showing up today and leading us in the truth that God's grace really is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. It is our God who answers prayer. I wonder, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? Who do you pray for? How do you pray? Some of you have things this morning that you're praying for that are really serious, significant needs in your life. Others, like me, often come with a laundry list before the Lord and fall asleep about eight items in. Some are praying for loved ones, relationships, perhaps children or grandchildren who you care about who are in need, or, or maybe, to be honest, you don't really pray much at all. Maybe you've tried and just doesn't really seem like it works. One teacher put it this way, prayer is like a beautiful dance. So if we talk about our service being like jazz, call and response, God speaks, we respond. Prayer is like a beautiful dance between us and the Lord in relationship as you would imagine children dancing with their father. Why, he says, because coming to God with our everything, we are able to trust him for everything he is. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, I love this, prayer is an offering up of our heartfelt desires unto God to come to him in that way for things that are agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, confessing our sin and need and with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. It is a relationship. It is a rhythm of grace that writes us into relationship with God, communion with God, knowing God. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer every week. The British theologian J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, there are really three venerable formula which together add up to the core of Christianity. First is the Apostles' Creed. This is what we believe in its core. Second, the Ten Commandments. This is how we should live. And lastly, the Lord's Prayer, how we come and talk with our God. These summarize respectively the Christian way of believing, of behaving as a response to grace, and communing with God. So what do you pray for? You know, I pray. I pray pretty frequently. I try to pray without ceasing, which doesn't mean you pray all day every day. It just means you, you pray when you're driving and when you're eating and when thoughts come to your mind. But the truth is I struggle to pray as well. Someone asked me the question, how is your prayer life? There's often going to be a change of subjects that comes pretty quickly. I struggle to pray, but in my heart, I, I want to, especially if this is what prayer is, an invitation to not only be known in God's grace, but to know God, to be reshaped and remolded more into His image, not only for His 
glory, but for my joy. To be whole. To be whole in this broken world. To be whole amidst the things that we cannot fix inside of us and around us. Prayer reminds me that I don't want God as a roommate only. You know, we share a fridge. We see each other coming and going, passing in and out. No, I want to hear his voice. I want to be heard. And I think that's the question that this text is asking us this morning. Do we? Do we want to know our God? That's why I love the disciples in Luke chapter 11, that other gospel where we get an outline for the Lord's Prayer, and they come to Jesus as would have been commonplace for disciples to their rabbi at this point in time. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Really what that question asks is, Lord, help us to know you. Help us to know what it means to know you. Help us to ask the right things that you would have us ask and to trust you in the asking. So then for us, the Lord's Prayer is a rhythm of grace. It helps us know our God, to commune with God, to have what our heart most deeply longs for, real relationship with God. On the mountaintops of our lives, in the deepest, darkest valleys. And in our text, I'm driven this morning by three questions. The first is simply, how can we know God? Jesus addresses that right up front, as you'll see. There are obstacles. We all have them. If God can be known, how should we talk to him? How should we relate to him? And lastly, what what does this praying do? I think a question that many of us have, again, deeply, maybe quietly, maybe we're a little bit afraid to say it out loud, but will the Lord answer our prayers? Does he care? So there's three ways that I see this in our text this morning. The first is that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows us a path, a path to knowing God. Secondly, he gives us, his children, a pattern by which we can pray, not just a rote thing that we do, but a pattern that shapes us and shapes the way we talk to God. And lastly, Jesus leaves us with a promise in these prayers as far as how they might be answered. So how can we know our God? Jesus shows us a path. First thing I want you to focus on is verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Now Jesus here is speaking to a very large crowd. He he has no idea really uh, who's there. You've got some religious leaders. You've got some folks who are interested in Jesus. You've got some people on the fringe. And he just makes an assumption that we are a desperate and a needy people, that we need a God who is not only good, but powerful to help us. And so when you pray, all are invited to pray. And I love this. I love this about the Lord's Prayer, that that it's not 48 pages long and filled with 25-syllable words that only a specialist or a religious professional like myself could understand. But it's a simple prayer that even children can pray. And I don't know about you, but sometimes my kids pray far more profound and trusting prayers than I do. All are invited to pray. 
rabbis would have taught their disciples to pray. And if you do a historical survey about these prayers, many of them were focused on the prayer book of the Old Testament, which Martin Luther said was a Bible in and of itself, the book of Psalms. 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms. It's essentially five different sections. And what I love about the Psalms, and again, I just kind of want to revel in how beautiful this is and not take it for granted as if this just grows on trees or if every worldview out there says the same thing, they don't. The invitation of the Psalms is not only that all can pray, but that all who pray can pray all of their emotions. So in Psalm 102 that called us into worship, you have someone basically beating on their chest and saying, where are you? If they were New Mexican, they'd say, where are you, bro? Where are you, Lord? Hear my cries. You know, we read right over that. I'm crying out to you. Stuff is messed up in my life or it's messed up in the world. And so in the Psalms, we get the full range of human emotion wherein God says, come to me. You don't need to take a shower and get cleaned up before you jump in the bath. Come to me now. Come to me if you're happy. Come to me if you're sad. Come to me if, you, if you're trusting. Come to me if your faith is weak. Come to me if you just need to beat on my chest. I am God. I can handle it. And I love you. And, and that's partly why this prayer is often referred to, not as the Lord's Prayer, but the disciples' prayer. It's a prayer that shows us how we come to God in all of who we are. And I use the word we intentionally because did you notice how the prayer begins? Verse 9, our Father in heaven, our Father. Not my Father, but our Father. So not only are all invited and invited in the full range of their emotion, but they are invited as an all, as a community. This prayer is a protest against our rampant individualism. It's a protest against our self-righteousness. It's a call to be those who are needy in community because we need one another. It's a reminder that it, that it doesn't matter if you're good enough, if you're strong enough, if you're a man's man, if you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We need one another. We need our God, and He is calling a bride. A bride is a people. The Lord is shaping us in community. In that way, I was trying to think of an illustration, and this one isn't very good, but the Lord's Prayer is kind of like God's jello mold. And we are all the jello. It gets poured in, and that jello mold shapes us into how we are to worship, but as a family, as a body and the bride of Christ. Now, you might have noticed in our text, Jesus shows us a path in light of two obstacles. Or at least the obstacles illuminated in two ways. It's really two sides of the same coin. You have the Pharisees who want to stand up and be seen and noticed. They receive their reward in full. And then you have the Gentiles or the pagans who are so intent in you know, stirring up the affections of Zeus and the other you know, Iron Man and Captain America and the other dudes in the Pantheon, hoping that they're not going to come down and steal their girlfriend that they use many, many, many words, hoping that their quantity of words is sufficient to appease the gods. In both instances, what you see here is not a relationship with God, but a mechanism of religion that is ultimately self-serving. As religion, so stated, always is. 
Now, to understand this, I think it's really important we dive a bit into the context here. The context is extremely important to understand not only the words of Jesus, but the Lord's Prayer itself. Matthew is one of four Gospels. Matthew primarily writes to Jewish brothers and sisters to show them that Jesus is the substance that fulfills the shadows of the Old Testament. So Christians don't just, you know, kick the Old Testament to the curb. That was old angry God, new Jesus God is nice and, you know, pets lambs and kisses babies. Nope. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus who is Messiah the Christ. And so Matthew models his gospel in this way. It is five major sections of stories and then teaching, stories and teaching, narrative and discourse. And in that way, it actually mirrors the Torah itself. Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. So in the first four chapters of Matthew, we get stories and narrative. We get the genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of God, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of David, the fulfillment of the prophecies. Then he's born and we see God working again in his providence to provide a savior. Jesus is baptized and the dove descends. The Trinity is present. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus is tempted for our sake in the garden. He's like Israel 40 years, but instead it's 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Then he calls his disciples into ministry. And finally, we get Matthew's glorious sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew 5 to 7, it's the longest continuous sermon we have from Jesus in the scriptures, and it's, it's beautiful. It's a clinic on what it means for us to be humbled and to rejoice. Why humbled? Because you need to see what Jesus is doing here, or at least what Matthew wants to show us Jesus is doing. Jesus is now sitting in the seat of the authority of Moses himself. Moses went up to a mountain and received God's law. Jesus goes up to a mountain and perfectly interprets God's law. And as he does, he humbles us greatly. Because a lot of you can get away with, you know, not committing adultery. But how about never having a lustful thought? A lot of you can get away with never murdering someone. Praise the Lord. But how about hating your brother? What Jesus does is lays us low in humility by applying the law to our hearts and saying, this is how much need you really have. But there's also joy there. Don't miss it. Because of the grace of God, Jesus then shows us how to live. And what better way to address that question than the three most common forms of outward Jewish piety. Outward Jewish religious holiness and practice. Do you know what they were? Giving. That's the beginning of Matthew 6. Fasting. That comes right after prayer and prayer. Giving, fasting, and prayer. And it's if Jesus is saying to both the Pharisees and offensively by comparing them to the Gentiles that we need to be deeply careful about our outward displays of religious piety because God is not impressed. God is not impressed by long robes and pointy hats and standing up in the marketplace. God is not impressed by the eloquence or the quantity of our words. Those are not the th things that bring us down the path of knowing God. In fact, if we're not careful, those are the very things that well up within us hypocrisy. 
What does the word mean? Some of you are familiar in the Greek. It would have been in reference to the masks that actors wore in the theater, but it's more than that here. When Jesus says that these folks are being hypocrites, what he means is this, that they are not only thinking they are very spiritual for how they pray, but that they are more spiritual than the people around them. So this is the two-sided obstacle of our path to knowing God in prayer. Our own self-righteousness. Our own thinking that, that we somehow need to impress or earn our way to the Father. And so the answer to these obstacles is beautifully stated in verse 8. I love this verse. My favorite verse in the passage. Verse 8. This is one that if you're going to get a, you know, if you're going to get a bumper sticker to add to your Subaru, number 410, some of y'all can't even see out your window. This is it right here. Summing up his admonition to both groups, he says, don't be like them. Now hear me. We got visitors here this morning and some of y'all have been burned by church. Welcome to the club. And I do not want you to hear right now, angry Jesus wagging his finger at you. Guilt and shame and it's the last thing that any of us need. No, it's the opposite. So when Jesus says, do not be like them, it's not some angry judgmental tone. It's, I love you guys. You don't need to carry these burdens. You don't need to carry the weight of standing on the street corner to be seen. Or praying endlessly to try to stir up the affections of the gods. No, verse 8. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Ah, oh, that is such good news. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. And this is what our hearts long for. This is the bottom of the story of our human need. Because all of us in life are going to face great things and hard things. We're going to go through joys and trials and tribulations. But to be fully known by our creator and fully loved and have our feet planted firmly on the rock that cannot be shaken. So that our hope is in something that can never be taken away. Your father already knows what you need. That's why we pray to our father in heaven. Not only is he our father who knows what we need, but he is the heavenly king of the universe. So hear this, my friends. Not only is he the God who wants to help, but by his nature is the God who can. That is the path to knowing God. And in that, Jesus gives us a beautiful pattern for how we should pray the Lord's Prayer. How shall we pray and talk to God? There are here six petitions, six things that Jesus tells us that we should ask God that he would do for his sake and ours. Six petitions. Six, Lord, would you please glorify your name? Would you please do your will? Would you please bring your kingdom? Would you provide what I need? Would you forgive me? And would you twofold deliver me from evil? Excuse me, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. This pattern shows us what Jesus would want us to ask for. And in doing that, it really shows us who Jesus wants us to be in relationship to God. First, that we would desire God's glory. Glory be to your name. Lord, come what may in my life, come what may in my relationships, come what may in my business. 
Come what may in this crazy, wild political season, which is greater than any reality TV show I've ever seen. Come what may with the coronavirus, and some of y'all are like, keep five feet away, and you have like super soakers full of hand sanitizer. I get it. Come what may, that stuff is serious. But Lord, would you get your glory in my life? Why? Because we love Santa Fe, and we love our neighbors, and we want to be whole. We want joy. So Lord, would you get your glory? Would you hallow your name in my life so that this, this city and this church begins to look and smell and taste a little bit more like, like heaven come to earth? Lord, would you bring your kingdom and do your will? That's a hard prayer. Because God's will is often very different than my will, and I don't like it. But Lord, it's really about your glory, because in your glory, I'll find my joy. God, you will be most glorified in me when I find the fullness of my joy in who you are and in trusting you. Would you make the way that we love our neighbors and tip the people that we're going to go see after we have lunch, after service? And forgive one another and care about each other in this body. Would you, would you make that a little bit more like heaven? Come to earth. Would you restore the promise of the garden? So when we pray this prayer, we are asking God to bring his kingdom, his name, his character to bear on our souls. And that that would be used by God as a stamp to deeply imprint this place that we love. And that's why we need to trust God's provision. It says daily bread. I don't really want daily bread. First of all, what I want is cash. And I just want daily cash. I want like some retirement level cash. Don't you? I mean, I, I want to I find my security in all the little things I could set up and control, except for this last week where, whoo, correction. No, Jesus says it doesn't work like that. You don't get next week. You don't get next year. Remember the parable where he says about the man who was storing up in the barn and hoarding all of his stuff? He says, this very night, your life will be taken from you. So we get daily bread. And here again, in the spirit of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is reminding his hearers about God's provision of manna in the desert. Oh, the Israelites grumbled. We want to go back to Egypt to the fire pots. God said, no, you, you don't get a week's worth, you get daily bread. You get to trust me that today will have enough worries of its own, that I will provide what you need to put one foot in front of the other for today. At the end of Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus talks about worry, he spells this out. He says, look, worrying is not going to add a single hour to your life. And today has enough trouble of its own to worry about. So seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And would you trust me that all the things you need will be given unto you for today? That's why I love the psalmist in 119. Psalm 119. Psalmist says, let your word be a light unto my feet and what a lamp unto my path. Okay, not high beams. I don't know about you guys nowadays, but sometimes people's headlights are so bright you can barely drive anymore. And you're clicking your high beams, they don't have their high beams on. That's just how bright their LED headlights are. Lord, help us. That's what I want in my life. I want to see a month down the road. 
I don't know if you've ever seen one of these little lamps that Jesus is talking about, but they're these tiny little clay lamps. You can see them if you ever go to Israel. They'd fill them with oil. There's a little wick, and you literally have enough light coming out of that thing for the next step. So you're on a dark, scary road called life. You're in the middle of a forest. Some of you can hear the wolves and the bears surrounding you right now. And God says, you can trust me. You can trust me because my word is going to provide just the light you need to put the next step in front of you. And of course, for all this, for the challenges of the forest, we require God's help. I love the prayer. And don't lead me into temptation. Why? Because we are tempted. You see how honest this prayer is? Lord, I come before you with my perfection. No, the Bible's real. This is, this is realism par excellence. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take it. Seal it for your courts above. Lord, lead me not to this stuff that I go to every time to cope. Food, alcohol, power, porn, money, and on and on it goes. Lord, lead me away. I know that those things do not satisfy. Lead me to you instead. And deliver me, Lord, from the evil one. Because the spiritual battle is real. Some of you know that because you regularly hear the voices of condemnation in your mind. That you're not enough. That you messed up. That you shouldn't pray. That your life is wrong. That if you hadn't just done this thing when you were 17 and made a different choice, everything would be better now. I've learned this about myself. That the more desperate I am, the better I pray. The more I know my need, the better I pray. And you know what I need? I don't just need some, some medicine. The Bible says we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It says it's not that you just need, you know, a little lavender on the forehead and a shot of antibiotics and, you know, a good doctor. We need the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to raise us up from the dead. It's a great quote by... Tim Keller was encouraging to me this week, no one ever learned about his or her need and sin primarily by being told. Parents, wouldn't that be easy if we just had to tell our kids one time? If I only had to break my foot on Legos one time, that would be amazing. That's not how it works. No one ever learned about their need or sin primarily by being told no. We have way too many layers of self-justification in our own hearts to grow without hard knocks. The hard knocks are coming. God has promised to be with us in those things and use them for his glory. As Joey said, for his power to be made perfect in our weakness. And what does it mean? Jesus tells us that if we are patterned by these petitions, we will be the ones in the world who bear the fruit of God. Did you notice that after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus uses as his only example of what it means to be reshaped by the path and pattern of the prayer, forgiveness. He could have used many different examples, but forgiveness. He says, this is what it means to pray this prayer with your heart. Lord, you've forgiven me. I'm free. I am loved. You've forgiven me. Now I can go out and forgive others. And guess what? They don't deserve it. 
The guy who cut you off in traffic does not deserve it. Everybody in the Trader Joe's parking lot does not deserve it. <laughs> you know, but let's get serious. The people who have really hurt you don't deserve it. The people who have betrayed you don't deserve it. The people in this church that annoy you to the point that like you could be in the same room, but you are not going to be friends with them, don't deserve it. And thank God, deserving it or not has nothing to do with the conditions of forgiveness. Because none of us deserved the great costly love of the Father for us and His Son. But it's a free gift of grace. And if that's true, then we can actually go out into this city and we can be instruments of that grace in the way that we love and forgive each other. With that, Jesus leaves us with a simple promise. It's in uh, your Bibles as a footnote. We say it every Sunday. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Amen. Because I am so aware that many of you are sitting here going, you know, I've prayed. My prayers aren't getting answered in the way that I want. Or if they are, certainly not in the timing that I want. And if God would just listen to me, we could make this all okay. Some prayers feel unanswered. Or you get an answer. No. Or yes. And you don't like it. Or maybe not no or yes, but not now. This is really hard. And Jesus knows that. Which is why he leaves us with this promise. He leads us down a path. He repatterns us to the gospel, to worshiping the Father for his glory, to trusting his provision. And then in this promise, we see that we can trust him now. Yours is the kingdom. Not yours will be. Not yours might be. Not it's going to be when I can get everything sorted out. It is now, today. We can trust him. And it will be forever. Come what may. The kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for teaching us, your children, how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. I, I pray you would convict us by your spirit. Help us. Help us with verse 8. Not in a condescending tone, but with the welcoming invitation of a father. You don't need to be like them. You don't need to practice this thing in public for a reward, to think yourself better, to be religious, or to stir up the affection. The father already knows what you need. And Jesus, I'm so thankful for this path you have shown us, the path of grace by faith alone, not by our works, to know our God. So may we be marked and patterned by God by a desire, Lord, for your glory, by a trust in your provision, by a belief that you will help us in the battle, that we bear the fruit of forgiveness. And Lord, I believe we can. I imagine what it would be for us in this room to trust your promise. Today, yours is, and tomorrow will be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We have such great confidence as we look back on our lives, the ups and the downs, that you are faithful. That God, you answer prayer. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.